0: So, a lot of you know my kids. You know, I have three sons Jonas, Cannon, and Liam. Liam's seven years old now. Jonas and Cannon are 11. They're twins. Um, some of you might know the story of how our twins came into this world, but many of you do not. And so, I want to share a little bit of that with you. There was a day, in fact, I think it was a kind of a rainy day like this, where Bethany and I we were walking around in our first home in that neighborhood. And we are just kind of dreaming and talking about starting a family and, and kind of ready to start making those steps toward that. And we had been trying for a while, uh, but nothing had been happening. And as we're walking, we are dreaming about this child that we may have. And Bethany finds a dime on the ground, on the sidewalk, and she picks it up, and it's, heads, it's facing heads up. And she says, this is going to be the start to our, our kids' savings I don't know how well we've continued that savings plan. But she said, this is the start to it. And I said, all right, cool, let's do that. Let's get a little piggy bank. And then we walk a few more steps and I see another dime heads up as well. And I picked that up and she goes, maybe we're gonna have twins. And I said, don't you speak that evil over me. <laughs> uh, we both have twins in our family, so we should have seen it coming, but we didn't. And so then there were other things that people started saying and just things that were happening were... Kind of like uh, there was something inside of me staring a little bit like, oh, maybe we are going to have twins. I don't know. And then we found out we're having twins. And we both sat there in the waiting room after the sonogram waiting to see the doctor in dead silence. And we wouldn't speak to each other or look at each other. And I just kept thinking, I got to get a new job. I got to get a new job over and over. Like we're having two kids now. Uh, But then we found out that there were going to be some potential complications. And so... We, we were sharing what was going on with people, and we kept having people speak things to us. And one lady in particular who I don't actually know that well, but we told her that story of the dimes. And she said, you know, actually, there's a big significance with numbers in the Bible, which is true. And there's a significance with the number 10. And it actually signifies God's governance of peace over all things. And it's interesting. You see the, the 10 plagues that God brings about Egypt in order to bring his people out and showing them, no, you're not king, Pharaoh. I I'm in charge here. I'm in control of the whole world. And then he gives 10 commands specifically to his people. This is how you're going to live in my peace, right? And so they they mentioned that, and then that kind of stuck in my head. And there were a few other things, too, that just made me feel really sure that we were going to have these two boys and that they were going to be healthy. And so when Bethany did have to go on bed rest in the hospital and stay in a hospital bed for two months— And I moved in on a little cot beside her and had my little frozen pizzas in the little mini fridge there that her her dad brought up for me. And when she continued to be told over and over again, here are the potential risks and complications, and here's the potential of us losing one of them. And when her water broke two months early and we had them, And when they came out and they were purple and they weren't breathing and they had to rush them over to an incubator all the while pumping this balloon thing by hand of air into their mouths to keep them breathing. And while they stayed in the NICU for six weeks themselves and when they got sent home and said, do not let anyone else near them. Don't take them outside for at least two months because if they get RSV, it's RSV season. If they get it, it will kill them. And we had to get these shots that cost $1,000 each per month All the while, Bethany and I had this huge calming peace over us. And God has promised us these kids, they're ours, they're going to be healthy, they're going to be fine. Even when we found out that Jonas was born with a grade one brain bleed, we knew he was going to be fine. And sure enough, they're happy, healthy 11-year-olds now. I share that story because last week we heard a story as we're going through this series of Advent, God with us, the promises of Advent, of this waiting period, that God will continue to be with you. He delivered a promise at the very beginning of the story of the world. At the very beginning, he delivers a promise that there would be a child. There would be a child born of the woman who would one day come and rescue you and make all things right that you had just made wrong. That was the promise. And we're going to hear a similar story today of another person in that lineage, in that line, given a promise as well that your offspring, one of your descendants, one of your sons, is going to have something great as well. This is a much bigger promise than the promise we were given of our boys because our boys are not the rescuer of the whole world, right? Uh, But they're a gift to us still. This is a much bigger promise that has implications for every single human being who has ever and will ever walk the face of this planet. And so what we're doing this month is we're moving through the promises that we see God continue to give his people, that he has not left and abandoned them, that he is still with them, even in the midst of a broken world. And one day, there will be a son who will be born, who will set things right. And so we started with creation. This morning, we're gonna look at King David, and we're gonna be in First Chronicles chapter 17. And then we're going to move next week and we're gonna hear a little bit about uh, promises given through a prophet of one who would come and take the suffering of the world and then finally, the promised one coming on December 22nd. We will not have a Christmas Eve service. Just so you know, enjoy time with your family that night. Pray with me and then we're gonna to turn to First Chronicles. Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word today. God, that as we hear about your promise, we would rejoice in the fact that you are true to your word. And God, may that stir our hearts and souls that we would leave here this, not the same, but changed, made more like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. So after the woman is given this promise, your offspring would crush the head of the serpent. They are sent away from this beautiful utopia that God created for them. She has a child, Right? She has another child. And perhaps that promise is echoing in her ear. Your son will crush the head of the serpent. And yet, instead, one of her sons crushes her other son. Cain murders Abel, and you see this this brokenness that they, the first man and the first woman, their parents brought into this world only getting worse and worse, and it continues to spread and spread. But God is still present. And he continues to come and pursue his people. And he even comes to one man, Abraham. He calls him and says, I am going to make a great nation out of you. You're going to have many descendants. And this man and his wife, Abraham and Sarah, are getting very old. They're in their 90s and they're going, how in the world is this going to happen? This promise of a child through us. Don't you know we're old? And yet God fulfills this promise. And Abraham and Sarah have a son. And then... You skip through some generations, you see as this family grows and as it grows into a large family that there's one son, Joseph, the youngest of 12, who is actually led into captivity and yet God uses that in order to rescue his family from a famine. And not just his family, but an entire other nation of Egypt. And so God is using this terrible tragedy in Joseph's life to actually bring healing and rescuing and restoring and safety and salvation to people through this son. And then you see generations pass and pass and now there's a new king in charge, a new pharaoh over Egypt, and he's scared that, man, Israel's having lots of sons and daughters and they're gonna continue to grow and grow and they're outnumbering us. What if they choose to rise up against us and kick us out of our land. And so they make them slaves. They start oppressing them and they make them do their bidding. And in fact, at one point, they even decide to start killing off the firstborn sons in order to mitigate how big and fast Israel's growing. And yet, there's a son who ends up being rescued from that through the river. His name's Moses. And God uses this son, this child, as he grows up and matures, and he calls him and he calls him to lead his people to freedom out of Egypt. And what we see all through this is not that these different sons are actually the true rescuer that God has been promising, but they're pointing forward to someone who would be a better rescuer, a better son who would one day come. Because each of these people are deeply flawed. Joseph is throwing it in front of his brother's faces that he had this dream that he would rule over them one day, right? And Moses ends up murdering someone just like his ancestor Cain had done. Like, the story is not about them being the rescuer or the hero, but that God says, I will use these people to fulfill my promise. And so God leads Moses to go and talk to Pharaoh and say, you need to let my people go. And then he brings the ten plagues I mentioned earlier upon Pharaoh and his kingdom and his household. And then he ushers his own people out to freedom. God's the one who parts the sea and lets them walk through on dry land, and then uses that seed to cover up and engulf their enemies who are pursuing after them. God's the one who leads them out and then gives them a way to live now in peace. God's the one who now leads them by a fire at night and a pillar of smoke and cloud during the day so that they can see where God is and where he wants them to be, and they follow after him. Then God tells them to build a, a tabernacle for him. It's like a giant tent. It's an elaborate tent, but it's portable. Because even though people have separated themselves from God, they've been kicked out of the house of God, so to speak, he still wants to be near them. And so he sets up camp, a temporary home to be close by. And then God's the one who's rejected by his own people. As they look around at the other nations and go, hey, they all have kings, a human king why don't we? And so they go to this prophet and they say, hey, we want Samuel, we want a king like all the other nations. And he goes, why? And he goes to God and God says, listen, don't be, don't be distraught because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. And I want you to tell them, this is what a human king is going to do. He's going to oppress them and he's going to do it for his own gain. But they're not going to listen, and they're going to still want a human king. And sure enough, that's what happens. And so they choose a king. God chooses for them, rather, a king who would be like the one that they're looking for, a tall, handsome, good-looking, rugged man of a man king, right? And he says, all right, if this is what you want, this is what you get. And Saul ends up becoming the suppressive king, just like God had warned them about. And then he goes, okay, now it's my turn. Let me show you once again what it looks like when I take broken people who will trust me and allow me to work through them. And so another son is born, the son of Jesse, and his name is David. And David now becomes king. And David is called a man after God's own heart. And remember, this story is not about him either. It's about God's faithfulness, God's rescuing, because David himself makes tons of mistakes. I mean, he screws up badly. But he keeps turning back and going, God, forgive me. I know that you are good and I am not. God, help me. And so God chooses to use this man, David, in order to care for his people and show what a good kingdom would look like. And this is where our story picks up. One day, David is looking around and he's going, I'm a king and I have a palace. And yet God is still dwelling in this raggedy old tabernacle tent that we built long ago. And so in 1 Chronicles chapter 17... Now, when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan, the prophet, Behold, I will dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord. It is not you who will build a house to dwell in for me. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people? Saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies, Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house And in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. I love how that chapter starts off with the King David, and then the next title that David's given is when the Lord's speaking, and he says, Go tell my servant David who's really king here. That's right. God is. And then even after that, he he it's almost like in his verbiage, he gives David a little promotion, right? He goes, I appointed you to be my prince over my people. He still doesn't call him king. David's the the king, humanly speaking, that the humans wanted over them. And yet, David himself even recognizes God is king over all. I am but his servant. And then God says, you are my servant, and now I'm allowing you to rule as a ruler, a prince. That's what that word means, over my people. As a ruler who is under the true ruler, the king of all things. Let's just, like, reflect on that for a second to put ourselves in our place, right? Because none of us are running any kingdoms right now. Like, most of us probably have a boss that we answer to, even in our own jobs, right? Right? And how often do we, in our own hearts, in our own minds, start to elevate ourselves, start to think we're pretty hot stuff? And David, the king over all of Israel, God's chosen people, is a servant to God. And so this reminder going, hold hold on, David, slow your roll. Who do you think you are? Remember who's in charge, right? He's putting him back in his place. And then he's going, now let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. Now, David's desire is not a bad desire. He's looking around and he's going, I have this beautiful palace to dwell in. And we're saying that this is God's home? Like it seems like that's a really good thought, David. Even Nathan, at first, is like, hey, yeah, do what seems right to you. Yeah, that makes sense. Why would we have God dwell in a tent and you in a palace? This isn't right so David's desire to go, I'm going to build a house that's way better for the Lord, seems right. It seems fitting. It's kind of like, though, you know, have you ever had, like, maybe one of your kids try to make you a meal? Like, try to make, cook, I'm going to cook dinner for you. My kids haven't gotten there yet. They're 11 years old, I think they'd still burn the house down. But uh, I remember my oldest brother, when I was a kid, when he was about 14, and he was taking this home economics class, and he was like, I want to make dinner for the whole family. And it's like, that's cool. That's a really good thing. Like, man, what a a desire to be a blessing, right? I'm going to use these new skills I've just gotten, and I want to share this with the family. We did not eat dinner until like 9 p.m. that night. And it was okay. (laughs) But, man, it's like, okay, that that was nice. It was a nice thought. It would have been way better if mom or dad cooked this, right? It's like that on a much bigger scale, where God's like, okay, that's cute. (laughs) You want to build me a house? Let me tell you what I'm going to do. Let me tell you what's really going to happen. You're not going to build a house for me. I've never asked you to build a house for me. That's not what I'm looking for. And He starts to say, you know, instead of that, here's what's going to happen I'm going to build a home for you, I'm going to prepare a safe place for you and all of your people who are my people, and all of your descendants who are my children, and I'm going to make this nation great, and I'm going to make a dwelling place and a resting place for you. That's a good promise, right? God's like, no, no, I got this. Don't worry. Just sit back and relax. How often are we struggling and driving so hard to accomplish something to appease God? Do you ever feel that? And I just want us to hear right now, like God's saying, hey, listen, I'm at work. I got this. Watch what I'm going to do for you. What is your job? Trust him. Trust that he's at work. Follow him. Just like he called Israel to follow that that fire at night and that smoke during the day. Trust him and follow him and let him build on your behalf. And then God does something interesting though. Then he turns and he goes, but you know what? One day you're going to have kids, and he says, one of your, your descendants, they're going to build a house for me. This is in verse 11. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, when you die, is what he's saying, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne Forever. What's uh, one of David's sons' names? Do you guys know? Solomon. Any others of David's sons' names do you know? Absalom. What was the deal with Absalom? He was a traitor. David had to run fearing for his own life from his own son, right? It's kind of like, remember, we, we had this promise given to the first man and woman. Your offspring will crush the head of the serpent, and then they have two sons, and one of them kills the other one. It's like, this is not going well, right? And then David's being told, hey, your own son will build the house for me, and I will establish his kingdom forever. And now, let's like flash forward from this point, because we can do that. We have this in the DVD player, and we could fast forward a little bit. David didn't have that ability at this point to do that, but we can jump ahead, and we could see David's now on the run from his very own son, threatening to be killed. I wonder what David's thinking in that moment. Like, God, really? What happened to your promise? And even beyond that, we we get the son Solomon, who there's lots of good things to be said about Solomon. But again, was he perfect? No. Solomon does end up building a temple a temple for the Lord instead of the the tent tabernacle, right? So it's more of a solid place. And you could say, okay, there's that promise fulfilled that uh, God said one of David's sons is going to build a house for him. And in fact, this story, by the way, is mimicking a story in 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, let's go there real quick. 1 Samuel chapter seven. We're gonna go to verse... I don't think I put this in the slides, and sorry for that. Verse 13, this is the same story, and God says, he shall, that's his son, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, that's sin, rebellion against God, the king, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Hold up. That part wasn't in 1 Chronicles, right? 1 Chronicles is like all rosy, like you're going to have a son, he's going to build a house for me, I'm going to establish his throne forever, it's going to be really good. 1 Samuel, which was written first, by the way, Chronicles was written later as a retelling. 1 Samuel says, it goes even deeper, yeah, you're going to have a son, he's going to build a house for me, and when he sins, when he messes up, Did anyone have an idea of who this son could have been before, in their head, before we read that part? And all of a sudden, like now, we're having some some tension here, right? Because this promised rescuer son, who we think we know who this person is, couldn't be the one who sins and messes up, could he? And he's going, "When when he sins, not if, not when the people sin, when he sins, I will discipline him but I will still love him. What do we do with that? So the question is, is this text talking about Solomon who built a temple for God and who does mess up and yet God still loves? Or is this text talking about another person who will come later? Because here's the problem. Did Solomon's kingdom last forever? We've got some cognitive dissonance going on right here. This kingdom did not last forever like God promised. His throne is gone. It's no more. Who even knows who the descendants of Solomon are now, right? I don't know. I didn't find that on my Ancestry.com. King Solomon was like, what of my great, great, great? No, that's not me. And this is the problem that all of God's people had. For years to come. Not just David when he's on the run from one of his own sons, but the rest of Israel are starting to wonder what is going on. Let's turn to Psalm 89. In fact, I'm gonna read just a few parts that I do have on the screen. It's faster than me flipping. Psalm 89. This is long after Solomon. This is long after David and long after his sons and even probably his son's sons, okay? And if you remember, if you were with us before, earlier this year, we were going through the book of Daniel. And God's people, Israel, were sent into exile into Babylon. And then even after they got back to Israel 70 years later, they were still under the oppression and the rule of other nations. And so one of the people of God, the psalmist in this one, this one is not David, although many of the psalms were writes this, he says, the Lord said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn an oath to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. So he's remembering back. He's going back and reflecting on the stories of 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. He's going, yeah, God said that this would happen. Let's continue, let's skip down a little bit. He continues for a long time and we're not gonna read the whole thing, just talking about how good this promise is. And in verse 35, it picks back up. He says, Once and for all, I have sworn, this is God speaking, an oath by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring will continue forever. His throne, like the sun before me, like the moon, established forever. A faithful witness in the sky. So, for 36 verses, 37 verses, the psalmist is just writing about how good of a promise this is while they're sitting in captivity. And he's going, this promise is not matching my reality. And so he continues with his pen to write this. But you have spurned and rejected him. God, you promised that you would do all these things through David and his offspring. And we don't even have a king anymore. We aren't even our own nation anymore. You said you would love him and establish his throne forever, but you have spurned and rejected him. You have become enraged with your anointed. You have repudiated the covenant that means taken back with your servant. You have completely dishonored his crown. I love the Psalms because it often deals with that same tension that you and I have. I know this is what God has said. And yet, this is my experience. I know that God has promised good things, and yet reality is broken, and it's a mess. And all of us wrestle with that. And the Psalms are such a good place for us to go to and see how one wrestles with that in a right way. Because it starts with 37 verses of how good this promise is, and then all of a sudden it turns and goes, But God, what is going on? Where are you? And the psalm continues to say, how long, oh Lord? How long are we going to sit in this captivity under this oppression? And then it wraps it up finally with the last verse. But God, you are good. <laughs> I know you're still good. And so let's sit in that for a moment with the same tension that the Israelites were wrestling with. Hold on. It wasn't Absalom. It wasn't even Solomon. Who is this descendant of David who would come and fulfill this promise that God has made? Now, if we remember, just like with the first man and woman, when they were promised your child, your offspring, would crush the head of the serpent, and that first son was born, and the second son was born, and one turns on the other and crushes him, does that mean that that promise is lost? It's a promise that your offspring, one of your descendants, one who would come later, would be the one to fulfill this. And we see time and time again these sons being born out of this line of God's people. You can trace the descendancy all the way back to, to Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. Is Abraham going to be the one? No. Is his son going to be the one who God finally brings even in his old age? No. Is, is it going to be Joseph? He frees the people from... No, it's not him either. Is it going to be Moses who leads the people out of Egypt? No, it's not him. Time after time, those people fail and fail. Is it David? No, but a son of David. And just like it wasn't the direct son of the first man and woman, we can rule out now it was not the direct son of King David that this promise is speaking of. Here's why we read out of First Chronicles this morning, first before Samuel even though 1 Samuel was written first. It's like God's, remember when we were going through uh, the book of Daniel, we kept talking about how often prophecies were layered. And God would say something, and it meant this for this time, but it meant something much deeper for another time. And that's what this promise is. What, what God is saying is, listen, when Israel, your descendants, your children and their children's children, when they sin against me, I will discipline you. But I will continue to love you. And then one day there will be another of your descendants. First Chronicles is taking basically the stories of First and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and it's chronicling it. That's why it's called Chronicles. But it's doing it in a way that it's saying, hey, I want you to see from the beginning of the story, the beginning of creation, the beginning of the world, leading up till this time of the prophets going silent and we're waiting still for a rescuer to come. It's saying, listen, this is the story. And we have a story of hope. And so it purposely leaves out all the negative stuff. It's really fascinating. It's going to, yes, Israel continues to screw up. But here's the point we want you to catch. There's one coming. There's one coming who will fulfill this finally and fully. One day Jesus is walking with his friends, his followers, his disciples. And there's a couple blind men standing by the road and they start crying out. Do you guys know the n- title they give them? Son of who? Son of David. Sorry, I led you on there. Because we talked a lot about how Jesus would always call himself son of man. But these two blind men, they say, son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, who are they calling him? Jesus called himself the Son of Man, always referring back to Daniel 7, the one who would one day be able to ride on the clouds and sit on the throne and rule over heaven and earth. And now these guys are calling on the Son of David, the promised descendant of David, who would one day build a house for God and God would establish his throne forever. Let's go to John. I have this on the screen. John chapter 14. This is what Jesus tells his friends after he tells Peter, You're gonna deny me. Right? After he's about to go to his death, and and after he's had this meal, and he sees like even those who have been closest to him are gonna fall away. They're gonna continue to forsake him. Yeah, he's gonna be faithful to them. This is what he tells them. John 14, verses 1 through 3 Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, or another translation has said, you have believed in God, and so believe also in me. And he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. One more, Revelation 21. It's the end of your Bibles. Jesus promised, I am going to prepare a place, a place that is one and the same of his father's house, this descendant who would make a home for God. It's a home not just for God, but for God and his people to dwell in. Revelation 21, the same author of John that we just read gets a vision and writes down the book of Revelation. Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared. Who said they were going to prepare it? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, the house of God, is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This promise that there would be a son of David who would one day come and build a house for God. And that his throne and his kingdom would be established forever. And that the sins of Israel would be forgiven and God will continue to welcome them in. We see is fulfilled in Jesus, but not only that promise, what we just read, the curse from the very beginning of the story is being undone. There will be no more mourning or sickness or death or pain. He is making all things new. He is welcoming us in to that Eden that we had lost that perfect utopian guardian at the beginning of the story that we sent ourselves away from as we rebelled against the king. Jesus comes as king and as man and he reunites the two of us again, man with God. He fulfills the promise from the very beginning of the child of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He fulfills the promise that is given to David. There will be a better king than you, David, who comes one day and builds me a house far better than you could build, and I will dwell there with my people. This is what we're welcomed into. I hope this Christmas season, as you're eating and sharing meals with people, you're welcoming a lot of people into your home to sit around the table with you and do that in light of knowing that God has welcomed you to his table into his home. We have been called his people. Better yet, we have been adopted into his family and can dwell in his home now as his children. And so we go now as his children into the world and we invite others in too. And this is the call, it's the call of Advent as we're waiting for this to finally and fully one day be fulfilled, that we continue to live in light of this. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would make us that people who dwell in the house of God forever And God, that we can recognize that even now, even here in the midst of a broken world, because of your spirit with us, we get to dwell in the presence of our king still. May we, in light of that, be a people who reflect you to the world around us, who invite others in to the table, into the house of God. Lord, use us in such a way. Just like you used David, who messed up time and time again still, An ordinary person, a scraggly little boy herding sheep in the wilderness. Your glory shone through him. We pray you would do that through this small, seemingly insignificant group of people. Your power would be on display for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your people dwelling with you for eternity. And We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go to the table now that Jesus invites us to, we remember that Jesus came to build a home for God and man to dwell in, but he came first by entering into the brokenness and the homelessness of humanity. You know, Jesus said that foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man doesn't even have a place to rest his head. He was born into a poor family, born in a stable outdoors where the animals slept laid in a feeding trough. And he continued this life of poverty and oppression and homelessness. And yet he's the one who one day builds a house for God and man to dwell in. He does that by entering into our brokenness. And so we go to the table, we remember that Jesus himself, his body was broken, his blood was poured out so that we could be made whole, so that we could dwell with him forever. So go to the table with somebody. Remind them of this truth.